Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. As we continue this morning to look at this series that we have entitled, Your Ministry in the Church. We are considering what it looks like for God's people to serve in God's church, our obligation to do this, and the means by which we do this, and all that we need to have in mind as we consider what it is that brings about service that is pleasing to God in and through and based out of his institution, the local church. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15 through verse 17. Paul writes this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is Paul's proclamation. That is his declaration. That is his wish. That to this particular God would belong all the glory. Paul desired to glorify God and honor God for a number of reasons. But one of the things is that Paul understood what this God is like. He's eternal, he is immortal, he's invisible, he is the only God, among many other things that are true about this God whom he served and whom we served. If you're looking to get someone a gift, a present, what is it that makes that gift acceptable? And not just acceptable, but pleasing. What makes a good gift over against a bad one? Well, you might think of such factors as the cost involved, the thought involved, or giving the gift at the right time. But perhaps no factor is so important as actually understanding the person to whom you are giving the gift. If you were to give someone something that they have no interest in, something that doesn't align at all with who they are and what they like, it might be very expensive and it might have come at great cost to you and you might be very excited about it and yet it might not be a very good gift at all. Well the same is true when it comes to our offerings and our sacrifices of service to God. We can spend our time in activity and busyness. We can do all kinds of things that we think are good. We can invest our time and our resources into serving God. And yet, if we don't know who he is, we might completely miss the mark as to what he wants from us. And our offerings and our service to him will be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, like punching the air or running without aim. We don't want to do this, do we? Do you want to spend your time in serving the church and in ministry, just kind of doing whatever and then finding out that this has nothing to do with the character of the God that we are serving ostensibly? Of course we don't want this. And so if we're going to serve God faithfully in and through and out of the church, we need to understand who our God is and what he is like. And therefore, faithful ministry in the church depends upon having a high view of God. 
a high view of God over against what we might call a low view of God. And I'll explain more about what that means as we go through the rest of this morning. But we want to have a proper view of God, a high view of God. Now, unfortunately, much of ministry betrays functionally a low view of God. What is a functionally low view of God? And there are a few ways that I'll give you just as examples of the way that this happens. Sometimes in ministry and in the church and in people's lives, God is reduced to one or maybe two of his attributes. You know, God is love and God is gracious. And so therefore the fear of God needs to go away and God's law and God's commandments really aren't that important anymore. What we need to focus on is the love of God. Or you can switch that around the other way where no, no, God is not all that concerned that we know and love him. He just, or that we know the love that he has. We really need to focus on obedience and on doing what's right. God is holy and that is really all that we need to worry about for the most part. And unfortunately, in a low view of God, these one or two or maybe three, just a few of his attributes are set at odds with others of his attributes. As if God somehow reveals things about himself that then come into contradiction. And we have to rescue God from himself and the mistake that he made in saying all of these things about himself. This is one way that a low view of God manifests itself. We don't let him tell us all of the different things that are true about him. Another way a low view of God manifests itself in the church is when God is set on the sidelines. And it's all about your story and your journey and your life and how things are going for you. And everything that has to do with the church is just about how things are with you. And God is just kind of over there waiting for when we might need him or remember him. The aim of ministry in such cases is not truly to glorify and worship God. Worship with a low view of God is only about God to the extent that we feel like he has to be involved for our own sake. In other words, if we need God to get involved in worship so that we have something to do or something to be excited about, well then God matters. But besides that, worrying about worshiping God for who he is intrinsically isn't really very important. This verse of 1 Timothy 1.17 would be completely lost to such a view. He is the immortal, invisible, eternal, only God. To him be the glory. Just to even say that he deserves this because of this and not as the means to the end of making us feel or experience something is completely foreign to many people's view of God. With a low view of God, God is not viewed as very holy. He is not viewed as sovereign. Oh, he has a plan, but he's not very powerful to implement that plan. He's trying, but he's not powerful enough to make it happen. God, with a low view of him, is viewed as a cheerleader rather than perhaps, as you might picture it, as a coach. If you want to compare the two, both of these people want you to win Both of them celebrate when you've done a good job. But the cheerleader doesn't give you instruction. And giving you criticism uh, when you do something wrong is not part of their job. Showing you the right way to what you should have done is not part of their job. They're just cheering you on. This is 
in contrast to a coach who has the authority to tell you how to do what you're supposed to do and will correct you and give you instruction in addition to wanting you to do well. But many people view God as their cheerleader, just very excited for them, rooting for them, helping them out when they can. But the second that he starts to impose upon your life, well, I don't want that kind of God. Under a low view of God, God is good, but only when good things happen to you. In particular, material good things. When you get a job, God is good. When you get a better job, God is good. When you have a child, God is good. When you get a new home, God is good. But when bad things happen, God is not so good anymore under a low view of God. And with this view, God can be spoken to in careless ways, trite ways. We use formulas. Lord God, we just come to you. God, we just think of you in this way. Empty words. Lives that are all about us except to sprinkle on some God language. Prayers that are nothing but formulas. Insincere speech that is full of affectation. Because after all, we're not going into the presence of a holy God. We're just doing some religious things. This is not the way we want to view our God, is it? This is not the way that the scripture portrays him. And this is not the way that we want to serve him. Instead... If we want to serve faithfully in the church, we want to have a right and a proper view of God, a high view of God, as we call it. Now, you might be surprised as we go through these things to find out that a high view of God doesn't necessarily mean exactly what you might expect. So uh, if you pay attention as we go through, perhaps there might be a couple of twists and turns with that. But nonetheless, we need to have a high view of God. And then there are certain ways that we need to respond and live in light of that high view of God. So what I want to do is to lay out a number of things that will affect our understanding of God. And then I want to consider for a few moments at the end of our time, our response to these truths about God. So we'll begin by looking at our understanding of God, our understanding of God. And I just want to just say up front, this is not a complete list. This is not meant to be exhaustive. I'm not trying to show you everything that's true about God. We would have to hunker down in every passage in the entire Bible to do this. This is what we do over time. But I just want to give you a sampling of some key things that are true about God that we need to consider as we serve him so that you can start to think about how what the Bible says about God affects the way that we live and that we serve him as a church and as individuals. So the first thing I want to look at is God as Trinity. God as Trinity. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are what? One. We are one. In Acts chapter 5, Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and therefore you have not lied to men, but to whom? To God. The Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, and of course the Father is God. Now at the same time, it's also true that the Holy Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. Therefore, we worship one God in three persons. One God in three persons. And as a result of this, there are a number of ramifications for the way that we as Christians distinctly worship God in contrast to other religions and in contrast to cults. 
we worship and give worship to each of the three persons because all of the three persons are worthy of this worship. They each possess all of the divine attributes. There is not one that is less than the other. We recognize that they are each, all three persons, fully God and deserving of our praise. At the same time, we recognize the distinct roles that each person plays in the plan of redemption. And therefore, we understand that the Father is involved in this way, and the Son is involved in that way, and the Spirit is involved in this other way, and working together to execute God's plan of redemption and his plan for history, the Godhead works all things out. And we worship God fully as one God in three persons. Now, because of this, we don't talk about God the Son as if he is somehow in conflict with God the Spirit or with God the Father. We don't set the Spirit against the Father or against the Son. And we don't split up the persons of the Trinity as if they are somehow different in their character. And in one way say, you know, I'm more about this one than that one. We also, when it comes to ministry, recognize that we don't worship the same God as those who proclaim a created Christ, a created son, or a son who is less than fully divine. We don't serve alongside such people because we serve a triune God. We don't believe the same gospel as them. We don't have the same purpose in ministry as them. We have a different gospel one that is from the Bible that recognizes Jesus as having come in the flesh in the way that he is described. So it's important just at the outset to recognize that we are a Trinitarian church. We believe in the Trinity and we believe in one God in three persons. Now, this Trinitarian God, this triune God, uh, there is something else that's true about him. We consider next God as creator. God as creator. A high view of God means that we have a proper view of man's place before God as his creature. Meaning, first of all, we aren't God. The world doesn't revolve around us. It doesn't exist and we don't exist for our own glory. Our goal in life is not to maximize what comes to us. Our goal in life is not to get the most out of this world or to get the praise of men or to try to make sure that we are thought of well by the world. Instead, our goal ought to be that God is praised by as many people as possible. So our ministry recognizes that we ought to bring the praise without regard for any praise that comes to ourselves. We ought to think nothing of that and in fact be willing to reject that if it means that the glory goes to God. So we are not God because God is a creator. Secondly, we need to consider under this idea that God is creator that God is different than we are. He is different than we are. There are some ways that we are like him. After all, we're made in his image. But there are other ways that we're not like him. We're not like him in many ways. Some of these are because of our sin. That is, that we are morally sinful and he isn't. But other ways we're not like him, even if we were never to have sinned, because we're his creatures and we're humans and he is divine. So we are not like him and our worship should reflect the fact that he is very different than us. Our service ought to have a kind of respect that recognizes that he is a creator, the creator, and we are his creatures. 
this should humble us as he has told us what to do and we have not carried out the purposes that he has given to us. Now, by virtue of the fact that God is creator, there is something that he has the right to be, which is strange to our ears, and yet it's true biblically, which is he has the right to be jealous of our worship of him. Now, when we think of somebody being jealous, what do we immediately think? That's wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't be jealous. In fact, what does God say in the Ten Commandments? He says, don't covet. Don't be jealous and want what someone else has that belongs to them and doesn't belong to you. But that's just the very issue, isn't it? Because who does the praise and the glory belong to? Who do our hearts belong to? They belong to God. And so if we don't worship God and we don't serve him, he is rightly jealous of that worship. This is exactly what he says in Exodus 34, verse 14. He talks about this idea of jealousy. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He is not hesitant at all to say this about himself. Exodus 20, verse 5. In the Ten Commandments speaking of these other gods, says you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is very, very eager for us to praise him. And he is the only one who can do this righteously. Anyone else who desires praise and who is jealous about it is sinning. But God, if he doesn't do this, would be acting wrongly. God is rightly jealous for his own glory and for the worship of our hearts. And therefore, James 5 says he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. He wants us to love him and to worship him. Finally, with God as creator, one other thing is true. That because God is creator, he is also the uncreated creator. He was not made by anyone else. He's not dependent upon anyone else as we are. Instead, he is self-existent. This is known as his aseity, if you want uh, the technical word for this. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. God's self-existence. Namely, that God was not made by anyone. And he doesn't need anything from anyone. Acts 17, 25, Paul says about him, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So when we come to God, we're not coming offering him service as sort of a fulfilling and meeting his needs. Instead, we're doing it because he deserves it and we're doing it out of gratitude and we're serving him not because we are filling any kind of lacking pieces in God, but instead because he is worthy. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. God doesn't need our worship, but he graciously chooses to accept it. And therefore we should be humble and grateful for the privilege of getting to serve him. So God is Trinity and God is the creator. Now let's consider some attributes of God, formally speaking, and begin with God's sovereignty and power. God's sovereignty and power. Psalm 103 19, 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over what? Over all, over all. What does sovereignty mean? We use that word a lot, but what does it mean? You may have noticed in the news, and even if you don't read the news, you I'm sure have heard that Queen Elizabeth died three days ago. 
Um, she was the longest reigning monarch in history, as far as we know, 70 years. And um, she was, she was a, a ruler who was well known throughout, really, the entire world. But um, there was another record that was held by the British crown in the decades before her rule, namely ruling over the largest empire in the history of the world. The largest empire in the history of the world in terms of just land area and percentage of the world that was covered. This is a, this is a lofty status to have, isn't it? The largest empire. And yet, this rule of 70 years and then the British Empire's rule of about a quarter of the land in the world is nothing compared to the scope of God's sovereignty. He rules over all, not only part of the world, but the entire world, all the angels, and every creature, and every particle in the entire created universe. This is what his sovereignty means. This means that nothing happens outside of God's control. And therefore, we know that if something happens, there's a good reason for it. We know that we can trust him. We know that if things seem to go badly, we can be stable and steady and not grow discouraged because God has sovereignly brought this about. Even if the act itself doesn't please him, this is not outside of his control. Because God is sovereign, we trust that he is able to do things that no one else can do. He can do, as Ephesians 3 says, above all that we ask or think. And he can do that in the church and in us as believers. It's because he says, according to the power that works, where? Within us. And we know that God is able even to save people who seem beyond the possibility of being saved. So we never lose hope because we understand that God is sovereign and God is all-powerful, almighty. God's sovereignty and God's power determine how we do ministry. Next, we consider God's holiness and turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a text you should know if you are at all familiar with the idea of God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This Threefold repetition indicates that this is an attribute which defines God in a unique and significant way. God is holy. And there are two main ways in which God is holy, in which he is separate, in which he is unlike us. One of these is in the sense that God is what we call majestically holy. He is majestically holy, which in a sense has nothing to do with his morality at all. God is simply holy, even in comparison to those creatures who have never sinned. That's why even the angels, verse 2, can't even look upon him. They cover their face. They cover their feet. These have never done anything wrong. And yet in the presence of a holy God, they do these things. Why? Because God is majestically holy. He is so glorious and holy that this is even the case when we have no sin to deal with before him. And yet God is also not just majestically holy. He is what we call morally holy. 
That is to say, he is separated from sin and separated from sinners. His righteousness, his, his character is righteous. And because of this, we have some obligations. First of all, we should serve him and we should worship him. And yet nobody in the world does. And this is why we need a savior. And yet God, having saved people, goes on to say, let's try this again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Making a reference back to the Old Testament law, this commandment God gave. I'm holy, therefore you should be like me. Now, a lot of times we talk about people changing their lives when it comes to Jesus Christ. Do you ever hear this kind of language? I became a Christian and this did what? This changed my life. And it should, and it does. But too often we think about Jesus as the life changer just in and of itself. You know, I was into all of these troubles. I was into drugs. I was into immorality. I was just kind of living my own life and doing my own thing. And, uh, you know, my life was just a mess. But then Jesus came in and he changed everything. And it's almost like we're missing this very, very critical component of what happened to bring that about and why that change should take place in the first place. A lot of times we view spiritual transformation as really kind of the end in itself. We change because that's good for us and because God wants us to change. And he's gracious enough to change our lives. Now it is true that he does this. And he does change our lives. But our motivation for transformation is not primarily because it's good for us, even though it is. Our motivation for spiritual transformation is because God is holy and we're supposed to be like him. Our transformation is appropriate in light of the God that we serve. This is why we change. So this leads us to consider then the standard that we aspire to. Many people are very happy as long as they're doing pretty good. As long as their life is better than it was before. And if your life is kind of together and you don't really have a lot of problems in the material sense or in the temporal sense, then it's kind of like, well, what do I do in ministry? I guess I'm just going to help other people that don't have all that together. Well, when the standard is getting your life changed to where it's not bad anymore and now it's good, then that's all you have to do. And you run out of stuff to do. But when the standard is God is holy, let's be like that then the work never stops. The work of spiritual transformation and helping other people grow never stops. So when we recognize a proper view of God's holiness as the foundation for why we try to grow, as the foundation for discipleship and transformation, then we recognize that this is underlying everything and that we never finish the work until God finishes the work when Christ brings us home. God is morally holy, therefore we should be holy. In addition to this, if you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find something else is true in light of God's holiness. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about how to build the church, 
how to build the church. And this is a really important and uh, often unconsidered kind of passage. We think about building the church and building it up and how do we do this? And very often it's basically we just think of a few narrow things. Here's what we do for this. We got to preach the gospel and then we've got to, you know, have people serving and that's kind of it, you know, and then things go from there. Let's just kind of figure out the rest on our own according to whatever the best thing seems to do. But Paul here is talking about the fact that I built the church in a certain way and we need to be careful about this and how we go about it. So look in 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's already started the church. It's laid on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but there are possible ways that the church can then be built upon that are either good or bad. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, on the one hand, wood, hay, straw, on the other hand, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What happens? If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. There are two types of doing work in God's church. One of them is building on it with materials that will last, good materials according to the way that God has described really early in this book as far as doing this according to God's wisdom rather than man's wisdom. And then you have the other work, uh, kind of work which is burned up. But then he goes on and look at what he says in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now he's speaking here, just by the way, of the church as a whole. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, it's very interesting. You may know the passage in, in chapter 6 where in verse 19 he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he actually uses, uh, the underlying form there is in the singular on purpose, but here it's plural. That is to say he's referring not to individual believers here in verse 16, but primarily he's referring to the church as a whole. You corporately are a temple of God. The church is where God dwells and the spirit of God dwells in you or among you. So as you sit here this morning, the spirit of God dwells not so much in this sense, individually within each person's soul, but uh, which is true, but at the same time, and as far as this is concerned, in the church corporately. And therefore, verse 17 says, if any man destroys the temple of God, which is what? In this case, he's applying it to the church. God will destroy him. The general principle is if you mess with the, with the temple of God, God's going to destroy you. And because the church is a temple of God, what's going to happen if you mess with the church? God will destroy you. Why? For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are set apart to God dedicated to God this is how we ought to view the church this is not just somewhere we go to make some friends and sing some songs this is not just somewhere that we can do it however we want to do it and it's definitely not something that we can attack or undermine God cares about his church and therefore we should have great respect and admiration and concern for it we should do everything we can to avoid damaging the faith of other Christians. 
We should avoid doing the things that harm the holiness and the unity and the love of the body of Christ. We should be very careful with the church because the church is the holy dwelling place of God. God's holiness dictates that we ought to care deeply for his place where he dwells, the temple of God here manifested in the church. God's holiness, by the way, implies one more thing, which is that we should be at the same time not only very gracious toward humble sinners, as we'll see momentarily, but also very intolerant toward unrepentant sin. We are very gracious toward humble sinners, recognizing that this is what we are, this is the way that God is, but at the same time, we are very intolerant toward unrepentance. So when someone is unconcerned for holiness, that needs to change. If someone is concerned for holiness and struggles and tries and continues to stumble, this is just the way we all work. But if someone is concerned, is unconcerned for holiness, they need to have a dramatic change take place in their life. God's holiness dictates the way that we minister. Fifth, God's righteousness. God's righteousness a similar concept, and yet it has its own idea. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and, in kind, uh, excuse me, and kind in all his deeds. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. God is always right in everything that he does, period. And therefore, when we speak of him, we speak of him in this way. God is never to be criticized or to be subjected to our own evaluation as if we can put him on the stand and say that he has done something evil. We don't put God in that position. He always does what is right. Now, there were some times in the Bible when people would pray to God, and you may have noticed this, and they sort of argue with him. You know, God, it doesn't seem like what you're doing is right. This doesn't seem exactly fair. But what were they doing in those instances? They were saying, God, this thing that it looks like you're about to do, or this thing that's going on, it doesn't make sense to me in light of what you have already established as your character. And so you have examples like Abraham saying, are you not going to rescue Lot from Sodom? Surely you won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, will you? Or, God, are you really going to destroy Israel, having come out of the land and bring reproach upon your name because you destroy them for this golden calf incident? I mean, I know they sin, but they're your people. Are you really going to do that? Or Daniel saying, how long is your people going to sit here not fulfilling the promises that you've made to them? In all of these cases, they appealed to God's righteous character. And then, of course, what did God do? God responded to those prayers. But what they were doing was they were saying, God, you are righteous and good and faithful. This doesn't align. What you're about to do doesn't seem to fit. So now act in accordance with your character. We trust fundamentally that God is righteous. And when we pray or ask him about things that don't make sense to us, we do it with that baseline that he cannot do anything wrong. And therefore, we're asking him to act in ways that align with that. Because God is righteous, 
in all that he does, we don't allow the culture's critiques of God and of the Bible to slip into our minds and make, him, make us think that he is less worthy of worship or trust. We don't apologize for God. We don't become ashamed of God as if somehow the, uh, the moral right is with people who oppose him and God has to change or be adjusted to meet the standard. And then, of course... We compare ourselves to God properly when we understand that God is righteous. We look at Romans 3, which says there is how many righteous? None righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Therefore, we need a righteousness that's not our own. Therefore, we don't preach righteousness by works and being good and getting better. We don't preach that you can become acceptable to God on the basis of your good deeds. Instead, we preach a righteousness that comes from faith. We preach a righteousness that is in Christ. A righteousness that says, I believe in Jesus Christ for what he has done because it's the only way. And we believe that the cross made a way for God to do this, as Romans 3.26 says, to be both righteous and the one who makes other people righteous by faith. Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we uphold the standard of God's righteousness. We preach the cross wherein he laid our sins upon Christ and remains righteous in his punishment of evil. And yet he did so in a way where we don't get punished for our unrighteousness, but instead we get treated as perfectly righteous in Christ, which is the only way to be right before a righteous God. Because God is righteous, this is how we minister to him. Number six, God's truthfulness. God's truthfulness. Exodus 34, 6 says that the Lord is abounding in loving kindness and truth. God always speaks truth. He always does what is according to the truth. His word is truth. And therefore, those who worship God must worship in, as Jesus says in John 4, 24, spirit and in truth. In John 24, there was a contrast, excuse me, John 4, 24, Jesus is giving a contrast between the Samaritans of the day and the Jews of the day. And the Samaritans worshiped sincerely, but they didn't understand the truth about God. And the Jews worshiped according to the truth of the Bible, but they were not sincere in their worship. It was all external. These are general statements. Of course, there were exceptions to this. But when we worship God, whether in song or prayer or words or anything, we need to be careful to cultivate two things, namely sincerity and accuracy. Sincerity and accuracy. Now, sincerity should and can and will look different among different people. Not everyone dances when they are sincere. Not everyone puts their hands up when they're sincere. Not everyone cries when they're sincere. But some people do. The outward manifestations of sincerity will vary from person to person, setting to setting, culture to culture. But sincerity must be there. It's rooted in faith and actual trust. But at the bottom line of this is sincerity means you care. Not that you're being forced to come to church, forced to worship, forced to give praise to God. But that you know that it is the right thing to do. And you believe that God is worthy of these things. 
you may not necessarily feel like worshiping in certain senses. You may be tired. You may be discouraged. And yet this doesn't stop you from sincerely saying, God is worthy of this. I believe this. And I'm going to give him praise. I'm going to serve him because I sincerely want to do this. At the same time, we need to have accuracy. We can be as sincere as we want, but yet completely miss what God is really like. And therefore, as a church, we must be about the truth. It is never getting off course to be very, very concerned about a precise understanding of the Bible. Jesus says we need to worship in spirit and in truth. So we should never say that someone cares too much about the truth or is being overly precise if they're trying to distinguish between what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, if they're trying to understand it rightly. Now, we can certainly go well beyond the pages of Scripture, and we can start to get into all kinds of speculations and things that are not helpful. But it's not a waste of time, and it's not a diversion from our purpose as worshipers of God if we try to understand the truth about what he said. So we need to be sincere in our worship and we need to be about the truth. And this is, needs to carry over into everything we do, not just what goes on during this particular hour on Sunday, but really in all of our life individually and as a church. God is truthful and we should serve him accordingly. Number seven, God's love. God's love. We serve in light of God's love. The Lord is abounding in loving kindness. Exodus 34, 6. Abounding in loving kindness. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 goes so far as to say that God what? Is love. God is love. Now this is, as hopefully you already understand by now, not the sum total of all who God is. Love is not God as if they are just one-to-one equivalents. But... God is love, and God does love, and he has a greater love than any creature has ever had. God loves his son, Jesus Christ. God loves Christians, believers in particular. God loves the nation of Israel. He says he has loved them with an everlasting love. God loves the world in general. In Matthew 5, we read that he sends rain on the just and who? The unjust. He gives good things even to the people that are against him. God loves righteousness. He loves people. To, he loves certain righteous virtues in people. And so if God is love, we must believe that he is love. Which means that when he tells us hard things... We need to understand that he is telling us these things in love. They're not in conflict. When we feel like God doesn't love us, we go to the scriptures and we take comfort from the knowledge that he does. We remember the cross and what he did to prove his love. Because God is love, also we must be loving people. And this is where the high view of God sometimes gets messed up. Because we think that it is a high view of God to be rigid, to be formalistic, to be impersonal, to lack compassion, to only be concerned with learning and not with practicing one another. People confuse a high view of God with a kind of stoicism and an external reverence. I have a high view of God and therefore I wear a suit you know, I guess I have a high view of God and therefore 
I stand still. I have a high view of God and therefore I don't want to get too involved in the lives of people. I don't want to show any emotion. I don't want to care. I'm just here to have a high view of God. No, a high view of God recognizes that God the Son condescended into this world, that he washed the feet of sinful disciples, that he wept with someone who had, with some people who had lost their brother, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead anyway. A high view of God means that we emulate the love that God has. Our love for others is to be modeled upon the love that God showed. It's sacrificial, Ephesians 5, a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says that we are to walk in love just as God, Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. We are to be, according to Ephesians 4, 32, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God forgave us. And that leads us to consider number eight, God's grace and mercy. Exodus 34, six says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. God gives his grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. God is not merely a God of holiness and truth and righteousness. God is a God who shows unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. This is what he does. We ought to exalt his mercy. This is, of course, most notably displayed in the cross, isn't it? In Romans 3.24, it notes that we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is vital that we understand this if we're going to serve God properly. If we don't understand God's grace rightly, we will damage our pursuit of all kinds of things. If we don't understand the grace of God and forgiving all of our sin, then we won't worship God appropriately because we won't appreciate his grace. We won't draw near to God because our conscience will still be bad. We'll think, I have to make up for some things before God, before I can worship him, before I can come and and give him my praise. I've got to do these things. We won't love God because we'll only see him as a judge and not a savior. If we don't understand the grace of God, we will lack grace ourselves toward other people. In Ephesians chapter 4, says this in the last two verses, It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Why do we treat other people with resentment and anger and unkindness? It's because we forget what God has done for us. We forget. So if we think of God only as a holy lawgiver, that's how we treat other people. And we don't act with them act with grace toward them. In addition to this, not understanding God's grace rightly will lead us to pretend to be righteous on the outside, hiding our sin rather than dealing with it openly and honestly, and yes, appropriately, but yes, at the same time, honestly and humbly. And we will only pursue a kind of external righteousness Because really we're more worried about how other people perceive us and not being judged and criticized than we are about actually pursuing the holiness that God prescribes with the confidence that God and his people are merciful and gracious. We will, if this takes place, be a church full of legalists and judges rather than a church that graciously urges other people to confess and put aside their sin 
and to conform to the holiness that God demonstrates for us and commands. We do need to remember as well that God's grace empowers us for godliness by his indwelling Holy Spirit and empowers us for ministry by the spiritual gifts that all of us possess. Finally, God's wisdom is vital for us to remember if we're going to serve him faithfully. Romans eleven thirty three. you know the verse. What does it say? Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now there are two, uh, there are a lot of ramifications of God being wise, but I want to show you two in particular that have to do with our ministry. One of these is in Ephesians chapter 3. The other is in 1 Corinthians 1. In Ephesians 3, it says in verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring the light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God designed the church to show off his wisdom. This is really important for us to understand and remember. God designed the church for this purpose. This is one of the reasons why Paul cared so much about the church. It's because God's wisdom is put on display to these, as it says, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Angelic beings watch the church and see, wow, God is really wise. We knew this, but we didn't understand all that he was doing. And this institution and the way that he brought it together and the way that he brought in the Gentiles and combined them with the Jews and all these things, this is putting the wisdom of God on display. All this to say that God knew what he was doing when he designed the church and made it the focal point of his human activity, his redemptive activity. And we neglect it to the neglect of God's wisdom being put on display where he wants it. The other component of God's wisdom and how it affects our ministry is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It says, uh, to those who are the called, speaking of Christ crucified, which didn't seem very wise or satisfying to the Jews or the Greeks. He says, but to those who are the called, that is the people that God calls to salvation, brings to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That is to say the quote unquote foolishness of God, the thing that seems foolish to the world, the gospel message, a crucified savior, offensive and Yes, idiotic, it would seem to the world at the time. This is the very thing that God uses to save people. God's wisdom, even where it looks foolish to other people, is superior. We're often tempted to do the kinds of things that the world wants us to do. The world wants us to say, because hey, if the world doesn't like our message, and if they think we're weird, and if they think that we're not exactly meeting their needs or aligning with what you know, kind of touches their heart, who's going to believe that? Well, Paul says, the called, the very people that God saves, because Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and it's wiser than any man's idea. What seems the most foolish from God is, is wiser 
than the best human idea. We can't come up with a better plan than God's gospel and God's church. So if God is all wise and this is the message he's given us and this is the institution he's given us, where does that lead us? We need to serve him according to the gospel through his church and not try to come up with better ideas of our own. I want to give you very quickly then our response to God. I'll just give you the list. And I think most of these should be pretty obvious from what we've talked about. First of all, to worship him. To worship him, including thanksgiving, praise, acknowledgement of who he is, living for him. This, by the way, makes merely knowing God, knowing more about him, very relevant. We often think that simply learning about God is not very applicable. You say, how do I apply this? You praise God for it. That's one way, among others. So to worship him, to trust him. Our response is to trust him. He knows what is best. He is the wisest. He is all-powerful. He is loving and gracious toward us. We put all these pieces together, and we have every reason to trust God. So we do things his way. We don't panic when things don't seem to be going well. Instead, we exercise faith in him through the hard times and the good. Thirdly, to conform to him. To conform to him. We as a church should have it as our goal. To be like him. In our holiness. In our character. This means that our goal is not to become as much like the world as we can in order to win the world. But our goal is to become as much like God as we can. And then still try to win the world. Our aspiration is not just to be a little better than we are now. Or better than the people around us. Our aspiration is to be like God. We are to try to conform to him. Number four. To love him. To love him. The great commandment with regard to this almighty, wonderful God is to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 tells us this. This is, according to Jesus, the great commandment in the law. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says that it's only by this that indicates that God knows us. If anyone loves God, he is what? known by him if we want to say we know God we need to love God and then finally number five our response should be to serve and obey him to serve and obey him Hebrews 12 28 and 29 therefore since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire Knowing who God is leads us to obey him. Knowing who God is leads us to serve him. So let's learn more and more about who God is. Let's refine our view of God. Let's more and more go back to the scripture to understand him. Never tiring of that, but knowing him so that we might serve him faithfully. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for revealing your character. May we remember these things and know you all the more that we might faithfully carry out your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.